tremendous uh, recovery. Yes, that's great. Well, uh, we are in the book of Revelation. So take your Bible and let's turn there to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And if you're a guest with us, we are starting a study in the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John somewhere around 95, 90, about 95 A.D. And today we begin a study of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor which were dictated to John by the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. And those seven letters are found in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Now someone suggested that it would be more exciting if we skipped chapters 2 and 3 and just jumped right into chapter 4 where all the good stuff began. I'm not going to tell you who suggested that. He used to be an airline pilot. Now, uh, while that would be a pretty exciting, I have to admit it would be a lot of fun, we would end up misinterpreting the rest of the chapters because much of what appears in chapters 4 through 22 are introduced to us in chapters 2 and 3. And so it's essential that uh, we know these chapters in order to understand the rest of the chapters. And everyone in this class knows the importance of a foundation. Without that foundation, the building can look great, but it's not going to stand. And so we need to lay this foundation. So we're going to pick up in chapters 2 and 3, go through the seven letters. And the first letter is, starts in chapter 2 and verse 1. So let me just read verses 1 and 2. To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. Now every letter <coughs> follows the same pattern. Doesn't matter whether it's written to Ephesus or to Sardis or Laodicea, there is a certain sequence that is followed in each letter. For example, every letter will start off with the name of the church. It'll identify the church. Second of all, the angel will be mentioned of that church. And we'll talk a little bit about what the angel is. Then Christ identifies himself, he's described in some way. And the description that he gives of himself is the same description that is found in chapter 1. So we'll see these little glimpses of what he is like based on what we saw last week in chapter 1. Then, the next thing that comes are praises, concerns, and exhortations. Praises, concerns, and exhortations. And then, each one of the letters ends with a promise uh, to those who overcome their guaranteed eternal life. Okay? So the overcomer is the person who perseveres in the faith. So this letter follows that same pattern. So first of all, notice the name of the church in verse 1. To the church, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now, it is impossible for me to emphasize the importance of the city of Ephesus. It was the major city in all of Asia Minor, with a population of 250,000 people. Now you need to think about what the ancient world was like and the kind of buildings they had and the houses that people lived in 
uh, a city of 250,000 people was massive. And not only that, Ephesus was a commercial center. It had a harbor right on the Aegean Sea. Now today, that harbor has been filled up with silt, and Ephesus actually sits back miles from the water. It shows you how erosion takes place, and silt builds up, and how geography can change over the centuries. But when John's writing, it is a port city, and that includes everything that it implies, a port city. A harbor town. Now, I grew up in Baltimore, which was, when I was a young youngster, was the second largest port on the eastern seaboard, only behind New York City. And you didn't want to go down to the wharf, what we called it, the wharf, <clears throat> where the troubadours were and the uh, the the people who who dealt with the cargo that came in. It was a, a filthy place, a dirty place. Uh, you were, your life wasn't safe if you went down there at night. Rats around the, ran around on the streets. And it was a hor horrible place. And Ephesus uh, had a harbor area where there were soldiers and prostitutes and filth. And, but at the same time, it was a vibrant city like New York or Baltimore was back in the day. And it was, it was glorious. It was a center for imports and exports. And there were three major... Uh, trade routes that converged on the city of Ephesus, one going north, one going uh, west, and one going south. And located in Ephesus, at the pinnacle of the city, on the highest hill, was the Temple of Diana. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I nearly brought a picture of it. It was 425 feet long. Think inside Cowboy Stadium or Texas Stadium. You know, the field's 300 feet long. And if you're in a baseball stadium like Texas Stadium, center field's about, what, 405 feet, 15 feet, something? That was 425 feet. Just the, That's how massive this temple was. And people thronged there. It was the center of, of a great mystery religion. Diana was the daughter of... Zeus in Greek mythology, and therefore she had access to the highest god, and which was her father. And you would go there, and you would get, you would eat a meal. All religious gatherings included a meal, and that's one of the reasons we have a Lord's Supper because that was the thing you did for religious gatherings. They had a meal, and it was followed by the symposium area uh, event, which included all kinds of prostitution and rituals, and it was literally bizarre and criminals could find asylum in the temple and the temple of Diana also had one of the most secure vaults in the entire Roman Empire so kings and potentates and wealthy business people would come and they would put their money in this vault in the temple now this is a city that first heard the gospel when the Apostle Paul went there on his second missionary journey. Now, in order to give you some background, I thought maybe we should turn over to Acts 18. I want to show you a little bit about the city, uh, which is amazing. We're not going to read much of Acts 18, but it will serve as a backdrop for what I want to say. In Acts 18, and we'll pick up at verse 18, Acts 18 and verse 18. <coughs> 
He tells us about Paul being in Ephesus. And when you get there, find verse 18, and here's what it says. So Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren, and he sailed for Syria. So he leaves Ephesus, and he, or he, he sails for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Chinchuria, where he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus. <clears throat> now watch this. And he left them. That's Aquila and Priscilla there. But he himself entered the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay longer, a longer time with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return to you again, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. So his plan is to leave Ephesus and eventually go down to Jerusalem. He first, however, in verse 22, stops off at Antioch, which was the church that sent him out on his missionary journey. But he promised he'd come back. Now look at verse 1 in chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper region, came to Ephesus. So now Paul comes back to Ephesus. And this is his third missionary journey. Look at verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, meaning the way of Christ, before the multitude, he departed from them and he withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyranus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia, because of the trade routes and the ports and everything, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So there's a tremendous uh, spreading of the gospel with Ephesus being the center and the gospel going out because of Paul's faithfulness, and he's there for about two and a half years. Now look down at verse 23. 23. And about that time there arose a commotion, a great commotion about the way. Here's the reason. For there was a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana and brought no small profit to the craftsmen. They had a craft union, a group of uh, craftsmen who made little idols, shrines, miniature statues of Diana. And this was a lucrative business in the city this size and with travelers coming to and fro. And they made a lot of money selling these idols. Now today, if you went to New York City, you might buy a souvenir of the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty. But in those days, if you went to Ephesus, you bought a statue of Diana, a statue of the temple, things like that. And Paul comes in and he preaches against idolatry and many people start turning to Christ. And they break with idolatry and these men are concerned. And so verse 25 says, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation. He said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, 
saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into dispute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. See, everybody worshiped Diana as the mother goddess. Now, there's a lot of mother goddess worship going on now in the world, isn't there? And it started right back here. She was the original mother goddess. Now, when they heard this, verse 28, that's the craftsman. They were full of wrath and they cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And they said it over and over again. Great is Diana of the Ephesians! They started chanting. So the whole city was filled with confusion. And they rushed into the theater, that's the amphitheater, with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So when everybody, these craftsmen begin to shout, the whole city says, what's that roar? And they said, it's coming from the amphitheater. So everybody rushes to the amphitheater. Now the amphitheater seated 25,000 people. One-tenth of the population could fit into that stadium. And so everyone rushes there to see what's going on. Verse 30. And when Paul wanted to go in to the theater, the disciples would not allow him then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, said to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. And some therefore cried one thing, and the others have cried another in the theater. For the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. All they knew is something was going on in that amphitheater. Everybody just rushed there to see what was going on. There was confusion. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand. He was a leader. And he wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Look at this. They all cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Paul has to escape for his life. He ends up leaving. He doesn't even, never shows up in that theater. So they're going to kill him. This is an unruly 25,000 people mob going crazy. Now that's what Ephesus was like. It was such an important city. And when Paul eventually goes to Jerusalem, he knows he's going to be arrested there, he's going to be killed. He, uh, he meets with the elders in, of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and he says, when I leave, let me warn you about two things. When I leave, Wolves will come in to this church. And even within yourself, false teachers will rise up and they'll try to deceive many people. He says, be ready. When I leave, there are going to be false teachers and deceivers from within and without that are going to try to deceive the church membership. So, what we have is Paul leaves Ephesus and then he sends Timothy there to get things in order. And Timothy has a really a difficult time. And Paul has to write a letter to Timothy talking about how to handle the situation and he can't handle it. And then in about 66 AD, the Apostle John comes to Ephesus 
And he becomes the lead elder in that church, and he stays there for 25 years as the pastor of the church of Ephesus until he's banished to the island of Patmos. And that's where Revelation 2 picks up. He's now on the island of Patmos, and he's writing back to his own church. And he wants to give them instructions. So go back to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Now, the instructions that he gives are actually coming from Jesus, but they're at the hand, the pen of the Apostle John. He's writing out what Jesus tells him to write. And so Jesus says to the angel, that would be the messenger, the leader of the church at Ephesus, write. And then what he does is he describes himself. So that's the second thing that happens. The church is mentioned and second Christ is described. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the middle of the seven lampstands. Now, we saw what those seven stars were just back in verse 20 and the lampstands. The seven stars are the angels and the lampstands are the churches. So here he's describing himself. And he describes himself in a, uh, in a way that says he's a person of authority. He holds the seven angels or leaders of the church in his hands. He protects them. He controls them. They're not in control of the church. Christ is in control of the leaders of the church. And he says he walks in the midst of the lampstands. He walks in the middle of all the churches and he's always inspecting the churches. He knows what's going on. That's what he, how he describes himself. And then next comes the praises and the concerns and the exhortations. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your labor, and your patience. Uh, when he's walked, because he's here in our midst, in a sense, he's the guest that's unseen. He's the guest that James Donnell did not introduce today. When he said, is there anybody else? We could have said, yes, there's somebody else in our midst, but you can't see him. It's Christ. And he's, he's inspecting us. And he knows what's going on here. He says, I know your works. I know what you do. I know what you don't do. Your labor. I know how you toil for the gospel. I know your patience. It's not easy, especially in the Roman Empire and the persecution that's going on. I know. He says, I know. So Christ knows everything. So he knows how we are involved in the gospel. And then he says in the middle of verse 2, And I know that you cannot bear those who are evil, meaning evil among you, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. So, within this church, there are people who are false Christians. That's what he says there. Those who are evil. They claim to be Christians, but there's no evidence. They're evil people. And there are false teachers, apostles, probably traveling apostles, who come through the area and teach things that are contrary to the gospel. And he says, you have tested them. And you found them to come up short. So this is a very discerning church in that way. And then look what he says in verse 3. He says, and you have persevered. Uh, because persecution is coming upon this church and they have been faithful, they've persevered <clears throat> through thick and thin. And you have patience, right now you have patience. You have labored for my name's sake. 
and have not become weary. You have ministered the gospel on my behalf uh, for the cause of Christ. And you've not given up preaching that gospel. This is all in relationship to the gospel. There are false teachers, false apostles, who are preaching a false gospel. You found them to be liars, and you've countered that with the real gospel, and you've not given up. And it's not been easy, because these people claim to be apostles. And they claim to have authority, and you've had to buck them. And, but you've been faithful in doing that. And you've done it for my name's sake. Now he gives the concern. That's what he knows. Now he gives the concern. So he knows the good things that we've done, but he also knows the things that we have done not so well. Nevertheless, look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, here's where commentators are very vague. They say, you've left your first love, and then, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to leave your first What is first love? And they say, well, you know what first love is. That's like when you're uh, dating somebody, and you fall in love, and boy, you buy them presents, and the, but guess what? After you get married, things cool down, you know. You still love them, but it's not your first love, you know. Well, that's not what this is talking about. This is not... Um, a verb, this is a noun. You've left, the Greek says, you've left the love. You've left the love. You've left the agape, which is of first importance. You've left the agape. Now, if you ask a first century believer what was the agape, they would tell you that was the Lord's Supper. That was the agape feast. That was the meal that you came together and you ate. And when you came together and you ate that meal on Sunday for an hour and a half and you provided food for people who didn't have it, see, that was an act of love. That's where the benevolence took place. And the other part of the meal, the symposium, where the prophecies came forth and the gifts were ministered and alms were given and... Healings took place. What's happened to this church, I believe, is that they have left the love feast. They have left the love. They have left the agape, which is of first importance. Now, that doesn't mean they may not be eating a meal. It's not they're eating the meal the way they should be. Just like in Corinth. Remember, they came together. What did they do? Some got drunk and gluttoned out, and what are the other ones? They ended up starving. Now, they're having a feast, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper. It wasn't the agape feast the way it should be. Now, I think that that's what he's describing here, and I have to say I am an absolute minority. But since I've spent five years dealing with the subject, <laughs> the Lord's Supper, I think I can make that case, and as we go through these chapters, you're going to see how I this case can be made. And if that means that they've left the agape, which is of first importance, they're not eating the meal and showing the benevolence and giving the alms the way they should during the meal, then verse 5 makes much more sense. Now look at verse 5. Remember therefore 
where you have fallen. Repent and do the first what? Work. Now notice what he says in verse 4. You have left and you've abandoned your what? First love. But in verse 5 he says you need to begin to do your what? First works. Do you see that? Now, so the first love and the first works are the same thing. See? So look what he says. Verse 4. You've abandoned the agape. Therefore, remember where you have fallen. Repent. Turn back and do the first works. Start giving the alms. Start take caring, taking care of the people during the meal. Or else, here's the result, or else, and this is his exhortation, or else I will come to you quickly, suddenly, when you're not expecting it, and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Now, what was the lampstand? What was it back in 120? I will remove your church. There won't be a church in Ephesus. How many churches do you think are in Ephesus today? Do I have any guesses? Good old-fashioned Bible-believing church. How about any churches? I mean, where's the church? It's been removed. And so he says... I'm going to remove the church from its place. Well, where is it? It's in Ephesus. Unless you repent. So he exhorts them. It's the church that's going to be removed. Now, he adds an addendum here in verse 6. He doesn't want to end on a negative note. This is his home church. And uh, he's writing to this home church, and but he's writing on behalf of Christ. <clears throat> so in verse 6, Christ says to this church, But this you have. Here's something you haven't abandoned. What is that? You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, Christ says, which I also hate. So, what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Do we have any idea what that is? Uh, all kinds of theories, and there's just no one really knows what the, who the Nicolaitans were. Except, we do know that Irenaeus, who wrote in around 202 AD, and uh, was a disciple of one of John's best friends, says that uh, the Nicolaitans were followers of a man named Nicholas, who was a false teacher. One of these apostles mentioned up here in verse 2, you've tested those who are apostles, and you found them to be lying. He comes back to that statement, and he says, but uh, even though that you've done the bad thing, you've, you've not really done the Lord's Supper the way it should be. You're not showing love at the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, still I have to commend you. You hate these false teachers, these apostles, and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's what Irenaeus says. Uh, Eusebius, who writes in the 4th century, says these are the deeds of Nicholas, who was the first deacon of the church at Ephesus. I like that, don't you? Look, you hate the deeds of the first deacon in the church. <laughs> you didn't even get that. You, know, you, you are really slow today. You know? <laughs> but that's what, I didn't say that's what Eusebius said, the church historian. 
Uh, but this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the followers of the first deacon, <laughs> which I also hate. Uh, evidently, there was a, somebody by the name of Nicholas in this church who, was, who tried to take over and taught false gospel, and they didn't put up with it. Now we have this statement in verse 7. He who has an ear, the individual whose ears are open, let him hear what the Spirit, and I think this is John actually writing this, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, what? Churches. Now notice, let him, singular, who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Now notice that this letter right here is written to the church at Ephesus. The first church on that circuit. You saw the map last week. But this letter will then be circulated to all the churches until it reaches Laodicea. So every message that's written to each church also has application to the other churches. And anybody who hears and takes heed of this message is a person who will be blessed. Here's the promise. Look what it says in the middle of verse 7. To him who overcomes. That's a person who perseveres to the end and he never gives up and he heeds this message. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now notice how he brings food in again. You see that? The person who perseveres, even if he's put to death, the person who's faithful to Christ and the gospel, even if they are banished to the island of Patmos, that person is promised that they will eat from the tree of life. Now, this is where food is very important in the Christian life. Food caused Adam and Eve to sin. Food caused the fall in the Garden of Eden. Wrong eating was the first sin. As long as they were eating right, they had a right relationship with God. Eating and the relationship with God in Genesis were equated. God gave them an instruction. Of all the trees you can what? And when you do that, you have a right relationship with God. Satan comes along and says, Hey, how about that tree? And they took of the tree that God forbade. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate from that tree, they fell. So the first sin dealt with eating. Now it's really important that you get that. We always talk about, well, what was the first sin? My mother used to say when I was growing up, she was raised in a real Pentecostal church back in you know, the Depression era, and her preacher said the first sin was sex. <laughs> Eight of the fruit, forbidden fruit, you know. He was learning an Elward Gantry character. You know. <clears throat> but food caused the fall of Adam and Eve, and it was wrong eating. And then, uh, how does God deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage? He tells them to eat a meal, Passover meal. And in eating the meal, they will be delivered. It's not just the meal commemorates deliverance. The meal brought about deliverance. Because what were they to do? They were to kill a lamb. 
were to spread the blood on the doorposts and they were to eat that lamb that was going to sustain them in their journey. And when God saw the blood and saw them eating in obedience, He delivered them. So the meal was the first act of deliverance. Right eating brought deliverance for the nation of Israel. And then there was the Lord's Supper right here. I think that's what he's describing. And right eating is an indication of a right relationship. An agape feast is how you live out the kingdom life. How you take care of those that are in need. Right there at the meal table. And at the end, what does he promise? The person who is faithful to the end, through thick and thin, will get to eat in verse 7 of the tree of life. Now, what Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. Remember after they sinned? God put an angel there and they couldn't eat from one tree. What was it? Tree of life. What Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat because of their faithlessness, the overcomer is allowed to eat because of his faithfulness all the way to the end. And when you eat of that tree of, what's it called? The tree of what? That represents eternal life. And that tree that we will eat from, those who are faithful, is found in the paradise or garden of God. And so that paradise, which was lost, paradise lost, because of the first sin, wrong eating, will be restored on earth, and there will be right eating. And you're going to see this food motif go right through the book of Revelation. And you're going to see how important the Lord's Supper or the Agape Feast was to the first church. Next week we'll pick up with the church at Smyrna. Father, I thank you that we're able to look at uh, some of this material uh, with new eyes. And may these two foundational chapters open our eyes then to the mysteries that, have, that appear in chapters 4 through 22. By the end of our study, may we have a handle on Revelation. And may we understand what it meant to that church and then apply it to our own church and our own lives. Lord, help us always to remember, although the message is to the churches, it applies to us, to him, to her, who has ears. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.